0: You're listening to a podcast by New Heights Church. We hope you're encouraged to glorify, grow, and go. In Genesis 39, we're looking at the story of Joseph and his interaction in Potiphar's house, particularly with Potiphar's wife, um, as he is in Egypt. Now, just to catch you up to speed, Joseph has been sold into slavery by his 11 brothers, Um, They have betrayed him and sold him to Midianite traders as they travel to Egypt, and they sell him as a slave. And so we'll pick up in Genesis 39. uh, Let's look at verses 1 and 2 to start with. It says, Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had brought him from the Ishmaelites, who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man. And he was in the house of his Egyptian master. Now, the theme you're going to see in this chapter is that everything around Joseph and everything that's associated with Joseph prospers, is successful. And that's really the point that Moses wants to drive home. And what I want you to see is that everything about Joseph is prospering and is successful, but Joseph is still a slave, he has been sold uh, from his homeland of Israel and, and, and been moved in trafficking to Egypt, sold into, as, as chance would have it, or really as God's sovereign plan would have it, he's been sold to Potiphar, who is a high-ranking captain in the military, um, commanding all these troops, and he ends up in the palace in this guy's charge. And everything around him is successful, yet Joseph is still a slave. He's not a rich landowner. He's he's not rich in the terms that we would think of as wealthy and successful. And what this is going to teach us as we look at it today is that success in God's eyes is finding yourself in the center of God's will. If you miss everything else I say today, you need to understand this, that success in the Lord's eyes is being in the center of his will for your life. It doesn't mean climbing a corporate ladder it doesn't mean having the best and brightest family and having the most successful career it means being in the center of God's will and that's exactly where Joseph finds himself even though his circumstances are pretty dire Um, when Amanda and I first got married we bought a double wide and put it on the family land out in Lincoln County and we were uh, we were driving an hour one way to work and to school we were both still in college and we we uh, we didn't have a lot of money, and we were you know trying to make ends meet, um, working full time and going to school full time. And I remember there was a, I think it was an IGA in Yawkey, West Virginia. Y'all know anyone know that remember that store? All right, so in Yawkey, there was this, a grocery store going out of business, and they had this mega sale. And I remember we went in to try to stock up. Like we went into that grocery store knowing they were you know clearing everything out, and we went in with the attitude of. Can we have enough money to buy enough food to live the rest of our lives from this grocery store? All right, and we found this wall in the grocery store that was like floor to ceiling of ramen noodles. And I don't know what the going rate of a pack of ramen noodles was, maybe like 40 cents. They were selling them for like three cents a pack. And, and so we were like, all right, let's empty out our savings account. Let's buy all the ramen noodles in this grocery store. So that's exactly what we did. We still have ramen noodles. This is like 20 years ago. We still have ramen noodles from that purchase. And, and so we bring all those back home. And, and I remember like we lived just down at the bottom of the hill from mom and dad. And so we could walk up the hill to mom and dad's house and get dinner for free. Or if we didn't want to impose on them, we could eat for about eight cents cost at our house with ramen noodles. And it was, it was the most successful time of my life, right? We didn't have any money, um, but I look, I'm like, man, I had no worries. I had a beautiful wife. I had a Volkswagen Jetta that was a diesel that got 50 miles of the gallon. Um, I had essentially an unlimited supply of ramen noodles, which made me king of Trace Creek, West Virginia. And I just, I don't know any other way to paint a picture of success than that. Uh, and so I think that, and along with Joseph's story, it shows us that being prosperous in the Lord doesn't mean being wealthy. Success doesn't look like having everything that, you know, whoever on your Instagram feed has. And Joseph's story is unique among the patriarchs because he has really more bad stuff happen to him than anyone else in the book of Genesis. But, but only thing, the only thing that's recorded about Joseph is his righteous deeds. And we've kind of themed the entire book into six sections, looking at Adam, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And number six is Joseph. And and the other five that preceded him fail multiple times in very serious ways. And Moses really only records the righteous deeds of Joseph. And the reason for that is in a literary sense and in a theological sense, Joseph is portrayed as a type of Christ. He is um, in, in a historical and literal and real way a person that is meant to foreshadow and point us to the worship of Jesus Christ and the work of Jesus. And so um, as we jump into this story, let me give you three things, uh, sermon points that I'm going to follow. Number one, we'll look at the work of God. Secondly, we'll look at the work of others. And thirdly, we'll look at the work of ourselves and Joseph as an example of righteous work. Now in preacher math, I'm going to take those three points and turn them into about 5.5, but um, just hang with me. First, let's look at the work of God. Now, what we need to remember as we look at Joseph's story in 39 is that his success wasn't just because he did everything right. Even though he he is recorded as having righteous actions and he does do a lot of things right, it's important to see that God is sovereignly orchestrating the circumstances to play into his exact plan. In Joseph's life, he goes from the pit of slavery when his brothers are selling him to being sold into the palace, then being wrongfully accused and going into the prison and then rising to power and becoming the second in command of the entire nation of Egypt. And it all begins here with this story in chapter 39. In verse 3, it says, his master, this is Potiphar, Potiphar saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. Potiphar actually witnesses and acknowledges that the reason for the success in Joseph's life wasn't just because Joseph was a stud and had it all together and was really talented and really smart and really strong. The reality that Potiphar sees is that his success is directly linked to the God that he worships. Um, And and there's a play on words in verse 3. The word master in Hebrew is Adon, which is the root word of Adonai, which is a name for God. And and so master could also be translated as Lord with a lowercase l. And so what, what Moses is writing is that Joseph's Lord, lowercase l, recognizes that his success is because of his Lord with a capital L. And, and, and what this shows us is that people ought to be able to look into our lives and see God's impact on ourselves. They ought to be able to see the blessing of God in our lives and on the people around us. I mean, like, if, if you work, ask yourself, can your boss see that you have a more supreme boss named Jesus Can the people around you and your friends see that the work of your hands is blessed by God? And I'm not talking about that you are successful like driving the the nicest car and living in the biggest house. I'm talking about gospel success. You see, this message is not prosperity gospel because Joseph is still a slave. The testimony of your life is not found in your prosperity, it's found in your peace. And as Joseph is a slave, he is still at peace and worshiping his God. He's not griping about his circumstances all the time. He works well for the glory of God in circumstances that are difficult. And most of us tend to operate on one realm or the other. Either we're in a good place and we praise God and we thank God for being in a good place, or we're in a bad place and we pray to be removed from that bad circumstance. You know, it could be both. You can pray to be removed from negative circumstances while simultaneously seeking God's glory in them. It doesn't have to be one or the other. And so Joseph, in bad circumstances, still brings glory to God and worships God, even in a pagan place. Verse four says, Joseph found favor in his sight, this is Potiphar's sight, and attended him. And he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. And verse 4, it tells us that Joseph, quote, attended him. What this means is that Potiphar is likely making Joseph the chiefest slave or servant, the foremost personal servant to Potiphar himself, which means that Joseph was trusted and that he was noble and above reproach. And verse 5 shows us the expansive nature of God's grace when it says the Lord blessed, not just Joseph, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. By Joseph's faithful obedience, non-believers are blessed by the one true God. This is mind-blowing to me because it shows how God can actually use us to be conduits of grace to other people. Last week, Pastor Jeremy taught us that that repentance is a gift that's given by God, that that no one will come to the Father unless the Spirit draws them and gives them the gift of repentance. And, and How does repentance come to someone? It comes by them seeing and tasting and experiencing the goodness of God. Romans 2.4 tells us this. Paul writes, Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? And so what's my point? Here's, here it is. That God's kindness is shown to sinners who he is drawing to himself through you, God's servants. And if you're missing out on this, you're missing out on a massive part of your created existence. Christian, your mere proximity to those who don't know your God brings grace to them. Those who need it the most actually get to see it in front of their faces through you if you allow it to happen, if you don't quench the Spirit, if you allow God to place you in circumstances that may be really uncomfortable for you, but understanding that he's got you in that place so that you can show his goodness and grace and kindness. So that others will come to repentance. And so that's God's sovereign working. Let's look at the work of others. Uh, When we see God's sovereign control, we have to acknowledge that we can't control him. We we don't get to call the shots on God's plan, where he places us, the places we find ourselves. The sad reality is we also can't control what others do to us or the work or actions of others acted upon us. Life will bring you unjust hardship. Life will bring you abuse. Life will bring you temptation. All of these things will come at us um, outside of our control. And Joseph's no exception of this. Verse 6 says, uh, Potiphar left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And so he mentions that Joseph actually becomes in great responsibility, uh, ruling over lots of the things or maybe almost everything in the home of Potiphar, but he's about to encounter a great temptation and then be wrongfully treated, um, even though he will do nothing wrong. He's going to be tempted in a sexual way, and he's going to remain righteous, but he's going to be wrongfully accused and condemned for something that he didn't do. The only thing that he's guilty of, verse 6 tells us, is being a handsome young stallion right? Some of you can relate to that. Not everyone, but, you know, some of us can. Uh, let, me just, let me just tell you from experience, it's tough out there for handsome young men, you know? That's why when I realized I was such a handsome young man, I began to pray that God would add weight to me and, and let me age at an accelerated rate. And he answered that prayer um, to help me. So <laughs> but I love that Moses puts this in there. It's like, Joseph's really handsome, and it kind of primes us and sets the stage for the temptation that's going to come to him. Now, he's tempted by Potiphar's wife, one of the most powerful men in the country, no doubt has a beautiful wife, because in that culture, he would have replaced her if she wasn't. Um, and so this beautiful woman with, with much power um, tempts him with sexual promiscuity. Let's pick up in verse 7. After a time, that's important, that's important. After a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He's not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you because you're his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her to lie beside her, or to be with her. Now notice the temptation that comes to Joseph. It's one that's common to all of us. It's the temptation to sexual sin and lust. Now these temptations are ever before us, um, especially in our day. In our day, if it's not happening in person in person to person temptation, it's happening in a digital format. Um, You can even get an AI girlfriend or boyfriend now. Um, It's deeply troubling what you can find on the internet, I promise you. And in Joseph's day, he didn't have all of these apps that, to tempt him, and, but instead he's tempted with this woman. And Potiphar's wife boldly propositions Joseph, and her temptation is strong for a few different reasons. One of the reasons her temptation is particularly strong is because it's secretive. And in the situation they found themselves in, they were able to keep it a secret. Joseph had access to have sex with her and, and, and have it to where no one would have found out about it. The other reason it was particularly a temptation for him was it was continual. Verse ten says that uh, day by day she was speaking with him and luring him, and so this continual nature of the temptation, and he didn't just have to reject it once; he had to reject it over and over and over again. And the third reason it was particularly tempting is because it's kind of snuck up on him. Notice that important phrase in verse eight, that or verse seven, I rather that after a time. His master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph. That he wasn't tempted by her as soon as he was uh, brought into the house or started his service. It took time. And that's how temptation normally shows up, isn't it? It doesn't spring upon us suddenly. It it, it preys upon us gradually. We're almost always tempted gradually, and particularly with sexual sin and inappropriate relationships. It usually begins with flirtatious interaction, which then elevates to text messages and phone calls, which elevates to physical touch until finally escalating to full blown sexual misconduct, ruining the lives of the people involved and highly offending a holy God. But the lie of the enemy through all of this gradual temptation is innocence. It's no big deal, it's completely normal. The lie of the enemy permeates through our society that, that promiscuous sexual action is completely normative, that, that it's not a big deal. Well, the Bible completely disagrees with that. It's not just an innocent work relationship. This isn't just an innocent friendship. It's compromising. It's going to lead you down a path of destruction. Or your habit of pornography is not just an innocent habit that harms no one. It is not a victimless sin. The reality is we don't need to go looking for se- sexual temptation. I promise that it's already found you and it's in front of you. And so how you react to it as God's children is incredibly crucial. So let's look at how Joseph reacts to it in the work of ourselves. Let Joseph's action be an example to all of us in how we resist temptation, particularly in sexual temptation, but, but also in temptation of any sin. The fact is you are responsible for your actions, and we live in a world that would discredit that. The trend of society is to, is to blame the societal implications around us or the environments that we're in or the trauma that we've, uh, that we've buried, but you can't blame tempters and circumstances and, and offenders. The Bible makes it clear that you stand before God responsible for your own actions, regardless of what unfair has happened to you. And the command to Christians is still obedience, no matter how, how wrongly you've been treated or how strong the temptation is. But look at Joseph's actions as an example. He does three things importantly. He refuses the temptation initially, then he takes steps to avoid the temptation further, and then finally he just runs from it. He flees the temptation. In verse 8, as he speaks to Potiphar's wife, as, as she urges him to sleep with her, he says, Behold, my master has no concern about anything in the house. Now, now he's, he's, building, he's giving her reasons why he's not going to sleep with her. But if you're a carnal man like I am, and you look at this, like these are actually good reasons to sleep with her, right? He says, Well, my master, he's not worried about anything in the house. You could say, Well, I'm going to sleep with her because he ain't going to find out because he don't care what happens in his house. The next thing he says is, Everything that he has is in my charge. He's saying, I have control of everything in this house. Not only just control of all the chores and the work, but I have enough control to actually conceal the sin. And the arguments he's given in in any carnal man's mind would actually lead them to commit the sin. In verse 9, he says, Nor has he kept anything back from me except you. That maybe Joseph would have been tempted to say, I do all kinds of stuff for this man. I work incredibly hard, and not only have I worked hard, but I've been unfairly treated. I've been sold into slavery. Heck, I deserve to have a good time with this. He could have easily talked himself into this, like many of us do when we want to sin. We justify it in our own minds. But notice that after Joseph gives all those reasons that could easily lead him into sexual sin, He makes a turn, and he does the complete opposite. And in verse 9, he says the phrase, how could I? In light of all those things, all these graces that God has given me that carnal man would see as an opportunity to sin, but Joseph saw as as an evidence of grace. He says, how could I then do this great wickedness and sin? Notice what he says at the end of verse 9. How could I do this great wickedness and sin against who? Potiphar? Against his wife? Or against himself? No, he he calls it a sin against God. You see, here's the difference between a righteous Christian and a pretender. The pretender only worries about not getting caught. And when all logical conclusions lead to getting away with what they want to do, they proceed into that sin. But the righteous Christian understands that even if they get away with it in the eyes of men, that it is ultimately, first and foremost, a sin against God. It might be a sin against the sexual partner. It might be a sin against yourself or a sin against your spouse. But ultimately, first and foremost, when you sin, you sin against God. And Joseph has Refused to take those advances. Secondly, not only does he refuse it, but he avoids it in the future. Verse ten it says that she spoke to Joseph day after day. He would not listen to her to lie beside her or to be with her. He wouldn't listen to her. He ignored her. There was a. Uh, you guys have probably most of you heard of the famous preacher Billy Graham. Uh, evangelist, and met with, I think, every sitting president during his ministry. And it was said of Billy Graham that that people tried to trap him in sexual sin, just like Joseph, that prostitutes would actually break into his hotel rooms and wait on him in scantily clad clothing so that when he came in, they would have a photographer to take pictures uh, to ruin him. And Billy Graham adopted what's what's now modernly known as the Billy Graham rule, where he would uh, refuse to meet with women alone or ride in a car with them or anything like that. And, and and I listen, I, I don't think that's a healthy practice for most of us. First of all, because you're not Billy Graham. Um I don't I don't know any of y'all where like hookers are trying to take selfies with you. I just don't. Um maybe maybe that's happening. I don't if it is, talk to me. We got some serious conversations to have, but um I don't know of anyone that's happening to. But I think the danger of adopting that is demonizing all women. Or if you're a woman demonizing all men. That The reality is there are a lot of godly men and women around us that we need to have a mutual respect for. And notice what Joseph does. He takes steps to avoid temptation, but he doesn't stop talking to women altogether. It doesn't say from that day on, Joseph never spoke to a woman. No, he stopped talking to the woman that was trying to have sex with him, right? If a person is being an intentional sinful temptation for you, beckoning you, calling you into sin, then godly action is to abandon them, is to cut them off, remove all communication wherever it's possible. But if a person is a lustful temptation for you, to no fault of them, then your heart is the issue. Don't disrespect them. Don't blame them on a lack of modesty or anything like that. Your heart is the problem. Don't demonize attractive people. Like Zoolander taught us, it's really hard being really, really ridiculously good looking. Amen? It's tough out there. But our hearts are the first issue. And so, as Christians, we have to guard our hearts with an understanding that we have a covenant with God. That we will do everything in our power to abstain from lust that leads into sexual sin. Job 31 Gives us this advice. Job makes this statement. He says, I've made a covenant or a promise with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? That, that he uses this uh, figure of speech to say that he's made a promise, a commitment, if you will, a resolution that he would not entertain lust in his mind. And then there comes an occasion, Joseph has refused the advances. He's done everything he can to avoid. He, he stops talking to her. Uh, but then there comes an occasion where he needs to just flee, he needs to run. Verse 11 says, but one day he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house were there in the house. She caught him by his garment, saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And so she's grabbing his clothing we don't know if it's like his tunic or a coat or, or just his basic clothing or whatever, but he leaves it and he just runs out. He's like sweet brown in that viral video. I didn't grab no shoes or nothing, Jesus. I ran from my life. Just get out of there. And I, I don't know what garments he leaves in her hand, but I just like to picture this story like Joseph running out of the palace in tidy whities That's how like, committed he is to getting away from this sin. That's the commitment we ought to have in our lives, right? Like, we're do, we'll do whatever it takes to get away from sin that will that will just bring uh, detriment to our hearts and, and, and bring distance and a wedge between us and our God. And I think this is actually what Paul had in mind when he writes to his young protege Timothy. I think he probably has in mind Joseph's fleeing from sin when he writes in 2 Timothy 2. Flee youthful passions. Run from the youthful temptations that still reside in your heart. And notice we don't just flee from immature temptations just to sit around and do nothing. Rather, he calls Timothy to to pursue righteous responsibility, pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. You see, Joseph runs from all that tempts him toward wickedness. He does all the right things. But then as the story continues, all the wrong things still come upon him. Hear me very clearly. You can do everything right by God and still have things go very bad for you in this life. Matter of fact, the Bible promises that when you live for the Lord, that bad things will come upon you. Our present reality may be very unfair, but our future promise is eternal justice. And so let me go back through a couple of these sermon points to see how injustice comes. Number one, at the hand of others, But then also how grace comes at the hand of God. So let's go back to the sermon point, the work of others. And so even though Joseph has acted rightly, remember, people can still do what they want. People can still carry out actions that are harmful to God's people. Potiphar's wife continues with her unholy actions. She's likely very frustrated at the fact that she's been rejected by Joseph. She's probably somewhat embarrassed. Um, She probably wasn't used to being rejected. And she decides that she's going to tell a lie to ruin him, ruin his life. In verse 13, it says, As soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to him, See, he's brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came in to me to lie with me. And I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home. And she said, she told him the same story saying, the Hebrew servant whom you've brought among us came in to me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. And as soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me. His anger was kindled and Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in prison. This was not a time of cordial trial, Joseph was most likely unfairly beaten again, taking on physical harm, just like he would have when his brother sold him into slavery. He's thrown into prison, which was a very cruel place to be at that time. It wasn't a cot and three meals a day. There was no promise of that. And just like Joseph's coat was used in deceit for him to be sold into slavery, here his coat is used again in deceit to throw him into prison. You have this great act of injustice. It's not fair. In the chapter before, Judah had committed grave sexual sin and had no punishment, and here his brother Joseph resists sexual sin and gets a heavy punishment. It's unfair. And the following narrative makes it even worse because it makes it clear that Joseph doesn't just go to prison for a week or so. He goes to prison for at least two years, but because of the favor that he receives there, we, we know that it was probably like three, four, five years that he spends in prison for this. And all of this injustice in Joseph's life is actually meant to point us to Calvary and the injustice that was laid upon our Savior Jesus. Remember, Joseph, as a type of Christ, was priming history to see another man who would be numbered among transgressors unfairly. Jesus spoke of his own uh, arrest in Luke 22, saying, I tell you that Scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors For what is written about me has its fulfillment. Jesus quotes from Isaiah 53, where Isaiah prophesied that the Messiah would be unfairly arrested and ultimately die and pour out his blood to pay for the sins of many. Joseph's story of injustice points us to Jesus's mission of redemption, that it is only through Jesus's unfair treating and his blood being poured out on Calvary's cross and his resurrection from the dead that any of us can be saved. And so we see that God's sovereign and good plan, though it may feel dark and horrible at the time, will ultimately be successful and victorious. But for now, Joseph's in prison. It doesn't feel very victorious, but God is still working. And over the coming weeks, we'll continue to go through Joseph's story, and we'll continue to see how God actually uses these circumstances to bring about the nation of Israel and the messianic line. But let's close by looking again at the work of our God and his sovereignty in this. When I read Genesis chapter 39, here's my biggest takeaway, is that the last chapter, excuse me, the last chapter of the, or the last paragraph, rather, of the chapter is exactly the same as the first paragraph. The first and the last paragraphs are almost identical And it's it's very interesting. It doesn't negate the importance of the story in the middle, but I think it brings attention to the fact that the middle is just the circumstances. It's what people are doing. It's what Joseph is reacting to what people are doing. But the beginning and the end are God's sovereign work in Joseph's life. Let me read the last paragraph, verses 21 through 23. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Did you catch the similarities? Moses writes this, inspired by the Holy Spirit, and I think what God is doing is he's painting a picture that no matter what we do and no matter what happens to us, that his sovereignty still reigns supreme, that God's plan is still what is most important. The Lord, we're told, is with Joseph in the palace and in the prison. In verse 2, it says, the Lord was with Joseph and he became a successful man. In verse 21, it says, the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love. The exact same thing happened in the palace as well as the prison. We're also told that Joseph found favor not only with God, but the people who were in charge. In verse 4, it says, so Joseph found favor in Potiphar's sight and attended him. In verse 21, it says, God gave Joseph favor in the sight of of the keeper of the prison. And not only did he find favor with the rulers, but he was made to be one of the rulers in both places. He was given authority. In verse 4, it says, Potiphar made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. Verse 22, the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. They completely trusted Joseph in both cases. In verse 6, Potiphar had no concern about anything but the food he ate. In verse 23, the keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge. And in both places, the result of all of this was the Lord's blessing. Verse 3 says, the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. In verse 23, whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. And so if you're sitting there saying, so what? What's the significance? What does it mean that the author repeats the narrative? Here's what is significant about it, is the location is the only thing that changes. That means that faithfulness to God is not dependent on where you are in life. Let me say it again. Faithfulness to God is not dependent on where you are in your life. You know, I think many of us live on the waves of circumstances, the ebbs and the flows of what comes at us, and we respond to our world rather than living for God in our world. That when we're riding high and things are going well, then uh, so are we. When our circumstances are good, then so are we. But when we're down in the dumps, so are we. When, when bad things come at us, we're going to be low as well. God has not designed you to ride on the waves of society and culture and your circumstances. He has given you a rock of a foundation in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he says that when you give your life to him, you are called into the steadiness as a Christian that doesn't change no matter what your circumstances look like. And so if you're in a palace season of life, you're called still to be faithful, to flee from temptation and to honor God. And guess what? If you're in a prison season of life, you're still called to be faithful, to flee temptation and to honor God. God's commandment to you and God's grace to you doesn't change depending on where you are in life. Maybe you're not at the palace and maybe you're not at the prison. Maybe you're just like, you're just on the porch to keep it with a P and alliterated. right? You're not just chilling on the porch. God's promises are still the same. And this is the great truth of the gospel, that God has come to save us. God has a perfect plan to redeem us. And while we imperfectly see that unfold, we can trust that ultimately he will receive glory forever for it and that's good news and so if you've just been kind of been like a bobber up and down kind of floating on waves let me call you to the steady foundation of jesus christ he came to save sinners like you like me one of the things I love about this church is you don't have to look very far to find really messed up people. I'm not proud of it. It's just, it's, it's a good thing. Y'all, y'all fully display the gospel every week. You're also messed up. And I'm right there with you, okay? The beauty of this broken assembly that we call the church is that it shows God's great grace because the message that we preach isn't about our goodness. It's about God's goodness on wretched people like us. And as he went to a cross to pour out his blood, to pay for our sins, to drink in the wrath of God that all of us deserve, he raises from the dead and he freely adopts messed up people like you and me to be sons and daughters in his kingdom. What can shake that foundation? And so if you just feel like you've been mistreated, abused and used and tempted and you're in the pit today, God's grace is still abundantly around you. And if Maybe you're one of the the, the chosen few where everything's just amazing. I promise you it won't be long until it's not. But God's grace will still be there. And his commandments toward you are still good. And his grace is still great. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. To learn more about New Heights Church or a relationship with Christ, please visit our website at www.newheightswv.com.